unprecedented times. Such has been the clarion call of this year. But just how unprecedented are these times? Whilst a global pandemic might not be an annual issue, many of the crises we are facing, from the erosion of civil liberties to debt crises, or from fears around technology to the shifts in geopolitics as major powers flex their muscles, these are the products of trends and concerns we know only too well, and which a state of global emergency has amplified. Even the pandemic itself was no surprise to those in the know. So what are these trends? Where have they come from? And what kind of path can we expect them to put us on? This is 2020 Vision, and I am Elizabeth Dykstra-McCarthy, with a podcast brought to you by Foreign Brief, in partnership with the Fletcher School, about how this year has accelerated global trends and a state of global crisis has made them that much more visible. With over 20 million people infected and close to a million deaths across the globe, the COVID-19 pandemic has taken more than just human lives. Economies have ground to a halt, leading to a global economic slowdown with nearly unprecedented job loss and unemployment. Stay-at-home orders and travel restrictions have called for over 4 billion people worldwide to remain inside their homes. And, although countries around the world are just beginning to ease lockdown restrictions and economies beginning to restart, we have a long way to go before life returns to normal if it ever will. Fears of a resurgence of the virus in the later part of the year have raised the prospect of a possible return to unmitigated lockdown restrictions. And yet, as this international public health crisis rages on, the perennial contest for political power continues. Throughout history, authoritarian rulers have often taken advantage of emergencies to consolidate their power. From Adolf Hitler's 1933 Reichstag fire to Russian President Vladimir Putin's more recent leveraging of the crisis in Chechnya, Wars, terrorist attacks, high-profile arsons, and natural disasters have historically been used by would-be authoritarian rulers to rally public hearts and minds behind a strong governing hand. How have rulers taken advantage of the pandemic to consolidate political power? What tools protect citizens from these threats? And should we be nervous, expecting to see some kind of popular backlash? In many countries, the restrictions that governments are imposing are very popular. You know, the idea that people, whether it's in the UK or in the United States or in African countries, Latin American countries, don't like lockdown restrictions and are revolting against them is actually untrue. If you look at almost all the survey data we have, people want a firm and strong government response. They're genuinely afraid of COVID and they don't mind being asked to quarantine or socially distance if it's necessary to deal with that. So, you know, in a sense, there is a kind of democratic foundation for some of this, which is popular support. This is Dr. Nick Cheeseman, professor at Birmingham University, who's here to talk about what exactly authoritarianism is and how it manifests. The COVID-19 pandemic has been somewhat a watershed in facilitating what many claim to be our authoritarian regimes. Is that what we're seeing? Leaders using emergencies or crises as an opportunity to consolidate power? Or is the pandemic simply symptomatic of something larger? Well, I think we might want to split this into two different categories. I mean, I think we are seeing some instances where we could say there's a deliberate manipulation where a leader has seen this as an opportunity to increase their powers and they've passed laws or they've uh, enacted policies to do so. There might also be cases where this is happening almost accidentally. For example, it could be that technology that's generally being used just for the purposes of tracking people. It's genuinely just intended to help us deal with the crisis. 
will lead to innovations in government's ability to track and follow people that will then subsequently expand the powers of the security forces in ways that aren't currently being foreseen. So I think we need to think about this as a sort of dual track process. In some cases, it's deliberate. In some cases, it might be more kind of accidental or even kind of evolutionary. But in order to put all of that in context, I think we also need to keep in mind that the uh, crisis of democracy or the democratic recession we see around the world is not something new. It is not something being generated by the coronavirus pandemic. It is something that precedes it. And, you know, if you look at major democracy indices, for example, Freedom House and others, one of the things we know is there's been a kind of decline in the quality of democracy globally over the last 10 years. Pretty much every year, more countries have become less democratic than have become more democratic. So COVID-19 is playing into an ongoing trend, but it's not itself the source or the driver of that trend. How do we tell the difference between genuine policies targeted at crisis management or public health and those that seem to be taking advantage of the situation to enact draconian or politically motivated agendas. What kind of signs could we be looking for? So, I mean, we might see a sort of policy that's enacted by a really democratic government that has a history of being really democratic. We might say, well, they're probably doing that because they feel forced to by the weight of the COVID cases in the country. And then we might see another example of the same policy, but being enacted by an authoritarian regime, where it might make us deeply suspicious that the COVID-19 pandemic is being manipulated. So I think here's two important indicators that we could use. The first is how significant is the COVID crisis? And if you've got a country where the weight of the cases is crippling the health system, you can then understand, for example, why really severe restrictions might be needed. In South Africa, for example, which has been a democracy for a long period of time, the recent imposition of a curfew appears to be a proportional response to a significant increase in cases that threatens to overwhelm the system. There are other countries, though, where we see much lower levels of COVID, uh, where we seem to see governments enacting a much more authoritarian response. And it's those cases, I think, where we might be much more suspicious about what the government's doing. So the first is really the significance of the problem. The second key indicator I think we need to keep in mind is to what extent are democratic checks and balances built in? So a lot of countries that have imposed a state of emergency or some kind of extraordinary powers for the government to be able to respond to COVID have done so with a very specific time frame and of a process in which the judiciary is able to review that periodically and parliament, for example, might be able to review that periodically and it has to be renewed. So I think the second key criteria is are the checks and balances that are actually built in to the way that those measures have been introduced that demonstrate to us that there's still that core concern for democracy and accountability and transparency. And would you, do you feel that it's a fair use of the term authoritarian when we, when we see countries that are, say, preventing um, public gatherings before there are any cases that have been reported yet, is preventing those gatherings, is that authoritarian or is that just cautious? So if governments are imposing a lockdown, again, for a limited amount of time, and they're using that lockdown consistently, you know, government officials and supporters, as well as opposition officials and supporters are being restricted, then we might say this is a consistent policy that's simply being used for the health benefit. But if we see a country which is coming up to an election, and we see these restrictions are being really vehemently imposed on the opposition, but don't seem to be imposed on ruling party members when they have 
a mass rally or when they're knocking door to door to try and mobilize people, then we might start to get very suspicious that actually these regulations are being manipulated to consolidate the power of the government and to undermine democracy and accountability. So I think in many cases, it's going to be a case by case um, picture. Could you give us an example? Uganda has just announced that uh, because it wants to have COVID-19 restrictions in the lead up to its next elections, it wants to have a kind of digital or scientific election. And the idea of that seems to be that instead of having mass rallies and the kind of things that you would normally see in the Ugandan election, which of course could spread the disease, you will see online campaigning and kind of digital campaigning. Um, and the process will be taken into a kind of different sphere where people won't have to come together all the time. Now, in principle, that sounds fine. But there are two things that make us very suspicious. The first is that this is an authoritarian government that has a history of manipulating electoral processes and arresting opposition leaders. The second is that we've got you know, an election coming up very soon. And related to that, some of the things the government has been doing as part of this sort of COVID response in a broader term seem to give it a big advantage. Because one of the things the president has said, as well as wanting the elections to be digital, is that he's going to be distributing TVs and radios to thousands of villages around Uganda. The ostensible purpose of those uh, gifts is to enable people to uh, get better information on the COVID-19 situation. But given the government's history, we might be very suspicious that one, these gifts are effectively an electoral bribe in the lead up to the election. And two, they're designed to enable the president to use his influence over state broadcasters and use his ability to influence private broadcasters to get his message into uh, the minds and the houses of ordinary Ugandans. When opposition parties denied a lot of that opportunity won't be able to get in there and then having the rallies being banned will disproportionately affect the opposition and not the ruling party. As well as opposition parties, civil society groups are often vocal about resisting these manipulations. How have they been disproportionately disadvantaged by the pandemic and the lockdowns? Civil society groups have historically really depended on being able to get people to the streets to force change. So the fact that they can't do so right now, and that if they do say they might be arrested on COVID-19 related legislation, is a really significant blow to civil liberties. And if one of our means of defence is a strong civil society and an active public one, then another possible line of defence that could be very strong is the freedom of information and free press. Has this taken a hit with potential avenues for misinformation or information control? There's a significant risk here. And the risk is that governments that have been looking for an excuse to regulate social media and to censor social media so that they can go and basically prevent their rivals, their opponents, their critics from saying legitimate criticisms of the government will take advantage of this situation to pass legislation or bring in new rules that would then enable them to continue doing that in the future and significantly erode the kind of privacy of individuals and the ability of individuals to use social media to speak truth to power. The real concern is that it's not simply being used against people who are spreading fake news. It's also being used against people who are, for example, questioning the government's official figures, people who are criticizing the government's health measures as being inadequate, criticizing the government for not responding economically to the needs of citizens. And in that way, it's actually being used to silence debate as well as to prevent people sharing fake news around COVID-19. And why do we, the public or the citizens, why would we let governments or leaders take this action? Is it just a public desire for a leader to rally behind during scary times? Uh, or a fear of instability or fear of the unknown? 
that's playing into preventing objections to legislative power accruing to central government and its executives? So it's sometimes it happens because people actually are willing to support these measures. And in some cases, that's because of fear. In other cases, that's because of effective government propaganda. So it's twofold. There isn't space for vocal opposition. And also the sentiment of opposing itself is being slowly eroded away. And as we talked about earlier, you know, some of these countries have been undergoing a process of gradual kind of de-democratization, if you like, or a gradual shift towards more authoritarian government. And as a part of that process, we've seen the gradual erosion of the mechanisms you might use to protest. You know, the courts have become increasingly politicized and loyal to the ruling party. The media has become increasingly censored and it's tough for journalists to speak out. They're increasingly self-censoring because they're worried that if they criticize the government, they might get sacked or they might get harassed and so on. And so So these sort of small incursions into different areas of the political system mean that the opportunities to challenge this kind of thing are increasingly shrinking. There is then a really genuine question about what's the most effective way for civil society to respond. You know, do you respond by using social media? But then what if you find that social media isn't actually giving you significant traction? Do you then break the law by going to the streets, but then you risk being demonized by the ruling party as a kind of agent of COVID and a force for you know, instability and a driver of negative health outcomes for the country? And of course, that's what you don't want because that's one of the mechanisms the government can use to delegitimize the opposition and legitimate the imposition of even more restrictive legislation. So I I do think that it's a real challenge for opposition parties to be really imaginative and creative and to actually have to come up with new ways of resisting authoritarianism that, you know, were not the ones that they probably relied on five, ten years ago. And given that there is no definite foreseeable end to coronavirus, what long term trends may we anticipate and what concerning developments should we be attuned to? Well, I think you know, going back to the point that this is a trend that started before COVID-19 has been exacerbated by the pandemic, I think there are two things that we should really be worried about. Uh, the first is that you know this trend will continue once the pandemic is over because it isn't solely being driven by the pandemic and therefore we should expect to see a further deterioration in the quality of democracy around the world in the next two years and that you know is a real call to action that if we don't actually act concertedly across borders to stop that from happening the world will be a less democratic place in five ten years time than it is now i think the second thing that we need to take very seriously is that you know in each of these countries we need to evaluate very carefully whether the things that have been done to tackle COVID themselves create this greater risk. So has new legislation been introduced that hasn't yet been revoked or removed from the statute books that has expanded government powers in a ways that were legitimate during COVID but will not be legitimate after COVID? Has the government used new technology for scanning our faces or identifying us and tracking us that you know we need to make sure is turned off after COVID because it could be used by, for example, security forces or police um, as a way of targeting you know, legitimate protesters, legitimate uh, groups who would be seeking to uh, question the government's policies. 
And I think there's a significant risk that if we don't do that, one of the things we'll see is a kind of gradual strengthening, increasing government power. And I think it's worth remembering that, you know, COVID-19 is not alone. You know, major national crises, whether it's major health epidemics, whether it's big wars, whether it's in uh, civil conflicts, etc. And the gradual increase in the authority of central governments over our lives you know, to some extent occurred as a kind of ratchet effect. And one of the things that we as kind of concerned and active citizens should be doing is reevaluating that balance between ourselves and governments. You know, how much of our information is private and how much can governments see? How much of what we can do are we allowed to do outside of the sphere of government sort of regulation um, and control? And how much are we actually being told what to do by governments? And we as you know, each individual society needs to decide where that line is between what it's willing to tolerate and what it wants to push back on. A lot of these developments have been brought to our attention because of scrutiny by the international community and the global press. Is there a role for the international community to mitigate or even critique this perceived erosion of democracy? And so I think one of the things that the international community really needs to think about moving forwards is how do we move to a different way of promoting and strengthening democracy, which isn't a relatively small number of Western states funding democratic projects and talking about democracy and human rights to the rest of the world, but as a genuine partnership between those states and other states, between civil society organizations in different states that starts from the premise that all of us have a reason to be worried about the quality of our democracy that all of us should be engaged in our own countries trying to make sure that government is accountable and transparent that we have problems like racism sexism um, etc that need to be addressed just as other countries do and that we can learn from each other to address them and I think if we can build something like that kind of a model we can do this in solidarity and rather than being rejected as a kind of form of western imperialism and western lectures that are not legitimate given what's happened in western states over the last few years we could actually see a genuine kind of global movement around democratic renewal but as i say i think to do that we have to first become significantly more modest about our ability to lead on these things i say that as a kind of british citizen um, and we need to you know, recognize the weaknesses in our own systems. And we need to demonstrate much more of a willingness to actually address them. When it comes to strengthening democratic projects, it's really important that the international community embodies this as a project of solidarity rather than one of instruction. As you've mentioned, the perceived primacy of Western democracy is equally under threat without the checks and balances provided by civil society groups, or at least an inclusion of a variety of stakeholders in the conversation. Often we only realise there's a problem when the international community calls attention to it with widespread coverage, and this feels almost self-selective. Certain countries with serious democratic concerns, such as Eritrea, or who have manipulated emergency laws and fears around national security during the pandemic, such as the Philippines, have not received the same invasive coverage that some other countries have, where perhaps the pivot is more stark, or there's more at stake geopolitically. And one example that comes to mind is Hungary under Viktor Orbán's regime. It's an interesting example, because as a European nation that heralds democratic institutions, we've seen the slow, careful erosion of democracy over the years accelerate during the pandemic with the Enabling Act. The Enabling Act, or authorization law, was passed by the Fidesz government to suspend the enforcement of certain laws for an indefinite period of time. This most controversially included the incarceration of individuals who were deemed to spread false information about the virus. 
Orbán also curtailed media independence by slowly acquiring media outlets, most prominently resulting in the forced resignation of Svalbox Dull, the editor-in-chief of Hungary's largest independent news website. Despite this, the extent of the expected outcry appears to be tempered and localized only to pro-democracy opposition groups. Opinion polls reflect a high degree of trust in the government's strong and benevolent reforms. So, as Dr. Cheeseman mentioned, it presents a conundrum if we can categorically rule Hungary out as an example of authoritarianism. People feel uncannily comfortable with a strong leader. We have today Dr. Anniko Sucks, a fellow at the Yale Macmillan Center and an expert at performative authoritarianism in Hungary, to discuss with us some of the ground sentiment towards Orbán's administration and the new laws and how they seem to have gained traction with the man on the street. What kind of a relationship has Hungary had with totalitarian and autocratic governments? Hungary has nothing else but a history of different totalitarian and oppressive regimes. So if we're looking at, if we're just looking back at the past 100 years or 20th century, we see one authoritarian regime and totalitarian regime like uh, following the other. So can go back all the way to the feudalistic Middle Ages that transformed into the monarchy of the Habsburg Empire. All of these regimes were a very strong centralized power under which the Hungarian people themselves were oppressed in many different shapes and forms. And then as you're arriving to the 20th century, it really is a history of different dictatorships and totalitarian regimes basically following each other, whether it's fascism or communism, until 1989. But speaking of Orbán himself, are his overtures during the pandemic something exceptional in his consolidation of power? Or has this been part of a broader trend of democracy erosion over the years? In my view, Orban has long consolidated his power. The first time he became a prime minister was in 1998, and he was a prime minister then for four years, paved the path for building a strong right-wing conservative regime that would rule the country very ideologically. And so once they won the the election in 2003, 10 and they won with a supermajority, they very systematically started to implement a, an authoritarian regime. Orban himself argued that he wants to build an illiberal democracy. And I will say that he did his best and he did everything to extremely efficiently, extremely uh, meticulously build up this political regime that does not give space to other voices, that does not encourage uh, any freedom rights, I would make the argument that he was not solidifying his power. He, he, that power has been solidified a long time ago. Given that Orban has sown the seeds for this illiberal democracy that he has promised, why choose the pandemic as the moment to implement the authorization law? What unique opportunity has the pandemic offered his administration? And how has this played out in Hungary? I would propose that this was the moment when Orban's authorized and uh, centralized and authoritarian power was most at danger during the past 10 years, I would say that. And from the very first moment, he took this as an opportunity for him to demonstrate his, that he is in control, that he's here to protect the Hungarian people. And if you think about it, these are all bold and extremely powerful statements at a moment when you, when you basically cannot guarantee anything. He knew very well that if, if nothing else, this virus could seriously um, endanger his power. And I think he sincerely feared that. During this time, he introduced a, 
handful of decrees, the parliament has a number of laws that have nothing to do with the virus, that have nothing to do with the epidemic, but this to pass certain decrees that would have a long-term effect on Hungary and on its international relations. There's a new surveillance law that allows access to more people's personal information. So let's talk about the authorization law, which it seems like he has spun well to gain popular support. Why exactly is this slew of legislation a prickly issue and what does it symbolize? What is the message to the Hungarian people when he chooses to say that I need to have all all the power in my hands to make the right decision for you, my people. It was also a really smart strategic move. This was as much about the opposition as, as it was about him, that he did not want to have an end date. He, from the beginning, he said that this will last as long as it, my propagandistic message was framed. And how can, how can an opposition respond to this? No way. So then the public discourse, the very debate in the public to the people becomes about here I am standing wanting to protect you and there are all these people in the middle of the pandemic in the middle of the most the the utmost danger that we could experience they want to prevent me from doing what's best for you and that's exactly what happened the announcements and it, it was just the announcement so he has not implemented the law yet but just the announcement of this authorization law put the opposition into an impossible into an absolutely no-win situation because if they're not going to say anything they do do not stand up for the democratic values that they believe in hypothetically assuming hungary was dealing with a truly democratic and transparent premier wouldn't we still face the same conundrum that it would be difficult to define a sunset clause given that the extent and duration of the pandemic remains an unknown unknown how could one potentially deal with the fact that no guarantee can be given but many of the other I would say European countries definitely did, that there, there was a sense of cause and, then, and they were very transparent about it, that they will have to reconsider the next steps and they will have to, and then, and then many European countries actually renewed the, the state of emergency. There, there, there were a number of end dates and usually they, these implementations were for two months, if I remember correctly, so early May, late April, early May, were the time when when the government wanted to reconsider or to see where they stood. But it so powerfully and importantly signals that this is not about me wanting to seize the power. This is about us needing to devote all our energies, all our attention to fight the virus. You've said that there's been very little resistance, almost no resistance, and opinion polls approval for the handling of this pandemic are at 80%, close to 95%, stating support for the Fidesz government to declare a state of health emergency in the future. With such little visible concern from the Hungarian citizenry, what are the probable long-term impacts of these measures? What's the worst case scenario that we're likely to see? The fact that eventually, and I think it was June 20th, the enabling glow ended, there was a common understanding that it doesn't change much. It doesn't becoming a law was not changing much as we as we were discussing earlier. It 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 did give it did give more power to Orban, but he already had all the power in his hands. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is that most of the decrees, so most of the decrees that Orban implemented during that time uh, or introduced during that time, did not expire and will not expire because they were not related to the virus. 
So he had a different agenda with those decrees and they're here to stay. And then there's also a new change of the law, which is a new law that the parliament actually passed, which is from now on, the prime minister doesn't even need the parliament to introduce a state of emergency and pass this enabling law, but the recommendation of the medical officer, of the state medical officer can actually be enough for a state of emergency and for Orban to, to start his own ruling. Because of course, who's appointing the medical officer, <laughs> the state medical officer, Viktor Orban is appointing um, that person. What's the EU's role in all of this? Recent negotiations with the EU saw Orban secure close to 53 billion euros for a seven year recovery period, decoupling it from conditions of rule of law. EU lawmakers have repeatedly threatened the use of Article 7 of the European Union Treaty to sanction Hungary for a breach of values. Do you think they will, or that this might hurt Orbán's public support? Or more specifically, at what point would action by the EU hurt Orbán? point when the EU will stop giving money, and the moment this, the EU stops, the popularity of the government will immediately go down because they will not have any money to... Of course, like, they have built oligarchies, but they make sure that the people get enough, at least on the surface, this country is growing and thriving. And before, so before Viktor Orban went to Brussels to start these negotiations in the parliament, he had a discussion of this very clause, which is that what happens if this aid is tied to, to the rule of law? And, and he had the parliament, parliament authorized him to veto the law if there is going to be a clause that would make rule of law as a condition so he went there with this and again like it's the same trope it's the same strong man who will go to brussels and fight for and just notice the notice the deep irony for hungarians rights so that we can have a lawless democracy and at the end of the day the eu decided to not have that clause in it or it's or a very or a, a, an extremely tamed version of it at the end of the day there is a financial relief package rule of law is not one of the conditions Given all we have discussed, what does the future herald for Hungary? Are we likely to see further resistance or resignation from the people? Hungary is not the country that will that will have committed protesters to go out on the streets. There is there is such a lack of investment for the people to go out to believe that it would make any difference. I do not know what could make people realize how much they are abused and exploited by this government if they still do not know. So that, that is a mystery to me. And I don't think that the EU will take action, which means that then both the country and the EU are perpetuating this situation. So, have national leaders been using the coronavirus lockdown to strengthen their powers? Yes, but this isn't a unique event, but part of a longer, older trend of the erosion of democracy. Nor is this erosion confined to a few rogue states, but a global issue which might strike closer to home than we would think. Our best safeguards are a robust civil society and a free press. And when these are under threat, we can be pretty confident that this trend is accelerating. What we can't count on is a well-informed citizenry forming a resistance. Twenty Twenty was produced and presented by Elizabeth Dykstra McCarthy. The associate producer was Max Claver and lead researchers Vivek Ganesh and Nick Giorgio. The editors were Elizabeth Dykstra McCarthy with Jesse Newman. Many thanks to this week's interviewees, Dr. Anna Sux and Dr. Nick Cheeseman. And until next week, goodbye.